So Wonder Woman is in theaters right now, and uh, we went, took the family to see this film. It was a good time. It was entertaining, really interesting story, and you know, all storytelling they, uh, is is uh, is, re is is such an interesting art because your film is all you're you're trying to communicate these messages all the time. Some are good, some are bad, some are you know, in terms of uh, our worldview, whether we agree, we disagree, these kinds of things. So it's always interesting to go and look at art and look at look at, you know, what's really being communicated here. There's this great scene that's really struck me uh, where uh, Diana, the character, is on, the, on, on this mystical uh, island of, uh, what do they call it, Themyscira, and her mom's talking to her, and this situation occurs which causes her to want to go and save humanity, and her mom's view of humanity is that man is violent and primitive and a total mess. And she turns to Diana and she says, uh, they don't deserve you. And it was just a great line. As this morning, we're going to continue our study in Genesis. We're going to read from Genesis 3. And uh, I couldn't help but kind of reflect on, on that, that scene of uh, Diana's mother looking at her and saying, they're such a mess, they don't deserve you. And uh, when you read the Bible, particularly the, old, uh, really the entire Old Testament, so much of it seems like such a mess. And you read these accounts of people who we most often, uh, you know, associate them as being heroes in the faith, uh, which in many respects they are, but yet every one of them is so deeply flawed in their own unique way, they're still a mess. And you can't get through the Old Testament without this feeling of like, boy, there's got to be somebody better than this. And even those who are heroes throughout the Old Testament uh, cause that same reaction to kind of rise up inside us, where we're just kind of constantly being let down. Man is kind of, you look at the ancient world, it's such a primitive, violent mess. But we don't want to be chronological snobs because we look at the world that we live in today and we go, wait a minute, we seem to be kind of modern <laughs> messes in so many different ways, in so many different respects. And it isn't to say that there isn't beautiful things about humanity to be celebrated, because that's true. It isn't to say that there aren't beautiful things out in nature and in culture and even reflected in God's common grace um, across the spectrum and the mosaic of all cultures, because that's true too. There's a lot of things about all cultures that can really be celebrated because they reflect the genius of God, the, crea you know, the creativity of God. But yet in all of it, we can't get away from this paradox that we're still a mess. And uh, so we come to... Uh, Genesis 3, and we discover that there is a God who is willing to come to us in the middle of our mess. And we uh, pick up the text here. I'm going to start, I'm going to read Genesis 2, 15 to 17, and then I'm going to read chapters 3, uh, verses 1 and 9. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not even need eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made for themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God from among uh, the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? This is God's word. As we come to this text today, we want to explore how God gave us everything and we destroyed everything and we made a mess of everything, but yet then yet God came to us in that mess. And we want to see his great grace from this text. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that there is a sin problem under everything and that problem caused us to lose everything. So God, through his great grace in Christ, is restoring everything. So first, let's look at the problem underneath everything. You kids are in the service today. How many of you kids have ever been asked to make your bed? And so you made it super fast, but you didn't take your pajamas out from underneath, and you didn't take your socks out, and you didn't take your underwear out. So your parents said, did you make the bed? You say, yeah, and then you go in the room, and then there's all these lumps. Has anybody ever done that? Of course you have. How many of the, how many of the, of the parents did that when they were kids? It's like there's a problem underneath here. You know, we see, it's, you're trying to pass off this as okay. Hey, did you clean your room? Yeah, I cleaned my room. I mean, everything's in the closet. If you open it up, there's going to be an avalanche uh, to your dismay. But yeah, no, everything's fine. No, there's a problem underneath it. How many of you um, who are here and you own businesses, we've got a handful of business owners here, and you know that when there is a recurring problem in your company, that problem isn't the, isn't the problem. If it's recurring then that means there's a problem underneath it, which is why it keeps coming back. We know this. Many of you are uh, brilliant designers. Some of you have renovated houses. Some of you have renovated cottages. Some of you have rental properties. And how many of you who have done work on your homes or are doing renovation work in your homes now would find a mold problem and then paint over it? Nobody. You see, sin is the problem under all the problems. And this text kind of gives us a picture of that. When the Bible talks about sin, it doesn't talk about us like we're worthless worms. It talk, the Bible talks about us like we were created very high, but we fell. We reached up, and that's what caused us to fall. How many of you have fallen because you were reaching up for something? That's, that's Genesis 3. It was a reaching up that caused the fall. When you look at verse 6, it gives us some great insight in this. It says that she, Eve looked and saw that the, the tree was good, that the fruit was good. She called it good. And so they chose in this moment to divine truth and define themselves apart from God. Because God said, if you eat it, you're going to die. But then they looked at it and said, well, the thing that God is saying will kill me, I am calling good. So this is like the very first post-truth movement, right, in Genesis 3. This is, you know, the uh, original fake news. This is the OG alternative facts. Right? This is what's happening in Genesis 3. And so what we need to note about it is that when they ate it, they didn't disintegrate into ash and physically die. But the moment that they ate it, there was a soul death. There was a separation from God. There was, there was a, a, a spiritual death that was actually worse because it was taking them into an, e an eternal state of disintegration. And so this sin, the problem under all the problems, it's not just ha it doesn't just have an internal uh, impact and effect on us, but it actually has and has had a massive impact on social fabric, which is why when we look out across culture, when we look out across history, 
what do we find? Throughout all of history, we find repeated acts of violence and injustice in some way in both left political systems and right political systems, in both communism and fascism. We find, if you look throughout history, we find slavery in regimes that were totalitarian and democratic. We can't, just, we can't just point to one culture, we can't point to one point in history, one people group, one political regime, one worldview, one way of thinking and say, that's the evil one. We have to realize that as you look historically at the, prob at the problems in the world globally, and if we look at the problems in the world globally today or even in the city today, it's across all worldviews, it's across all cultures, it's across all people groups that there's a problem that's underneath it. We can't just narrow it down and say, you know, uh, it's this. You see, uh, you see it in the horrific uh, genocides that have happened over the generations. It's not just one people group. We can't just look at World War II and say, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the picture because you also have the Balkan genocides and you have Rwanda. It's across cultures. Why is that? What has the sin problem that's underneath everything actually done? What's caused there to be injustice, historically speaking, done in the name of God? Injustices being done today, atrocities in the name of God, and atrocities being done by, re by regimes whose official position is, is atheistic and against God. Both. So we can look and say, well, religion is the problem. If we could just get, a get rid of religion, we'd get rid of all the wars. But then we can go to re regimes like whether it's under Stalin or whether it's uh, uh, communist China or, other, uh, or the Cambodian regimes, and we can say, yeah, but then you can find other regimes that are absolutely uh, against God in every form, and yet the problem's everywhere. What's this problem under the problem? We get it in Genesis 3 here. It's a, it takes us a place, someplace intellectually, kind of kicking and screaming that we don't want to go. And it's the problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. And we have to confess that really what, what sin in, in the scriptures is getting us to confess is that we can't save ourselves. I, I read a book last year called Rage Against God by Peter Hitchens, and I mentioned this before. And Peter Hitchens is a British, British journalist who lived in uh, communist Russia. He's the brother of uh, Christopher Hitchens, the, uh, the very uh, well-known um, agnostic scientist who's written uh, a lot of works on a naturalist position. And Peter Hitchens in the book said, well, we're all kind of, he realized we're all homeless utopians. You've heard me talk about this before. Because he realized if what we're saying, utopia is the ability to create harmony and peace without God. You don't need God. You just, in our own intellect, with our own wisdom and our own reasoning, we can create that for ourselves. And Peter Hitchens, living in communist Russia, looked around and said, we're homeless utopians. Because if we deny that God that is coming back in Christ to create a kingdom of peace, we're still incapable of creating that kingdom of peace for ourselves. We're homeless utopians. There's a sin problem. It's underneath. So the Christian doctrine of sin is not that you come to hate yourself. It's not that you come to think poorly about yourself. It's that you come to the realization that you can't save yourself. This is what we get in Genesis 3 here. And so as you look at, at verses 6 and 7, as they go to the tree, it provokes us to see that all attempts to find ultimate fulfillment outside of God are just failed attempts to save ourselves. They're just failed attempts to say, I'll find my fulfillment over here. This will satisfy my soul. This will complete me, which is why Augustine said very famously that the human heart is restless and it will remain restless until it finds its rest in God. And so what we discover here in Genesis 3 
is that the human soul wasn't created to believe in God in a general way. We were created to love God in a supreme way. Our souls flourish. We have true fulfillment, true joy, when we love God in an ultimate way, not just we don't just believe him in a marginal or a general way. And their abandonment of God in that moment revealed that they entered into this restlessness. Because if we love God in a supreme way, we're able to enjoy all things. But what we see in the garden with, in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve, they stopped loving God in a supreme way, and that caused them to look at things in an ultimate way. And that's, that is going to take us down a, a trajectory of absolute soul erosion. Uh, Thomas Oden is a professor of theology at Drew University in New Jersey. He wrote a book called Two Worlds. And in the book, he, talk, he kind of talks about it and, it, and it gives you a picture of what was happening in Genesis 3 when they were looking to something else for fulfillment. And he says this, Suppose that my, my God is sex, or it's my physical health, or it's my political party. If I experience any of these things under threat, I'll be shaken to the depths. Guilt will become neurotically intensified to the degree that I've idolized these finite values. Suppose that my ability to teach has become my ultimate value. If I don't teach well, I will be stricken with neurotic guilt. Bitterness becomes neurotically intensified when someone or something stands between me and the something that has become my ultimate value. And so what we find here in Genesis 3, the problem under everything is that without a deep sense that we're loved by God and can be fulfilled by God, and then in response, in turn, love God, our identity will be unstable. And we will stop at nothing. We will go after anything or anyone to stabilize that identity. And that's the problem under everything. So let's move on. How did we lose everything? And it's, it's a, a very common uh, question that I get when I'm, when I'm discussing our need for a savior with people who are wrestling with Christian faith. And I have these great, great conversations and dialogues with friends who have a lot of questions. And one of them that comes up is, what does that sin have to do with me? What does this ancient thing that one man did have anything to do with me today? Well, I want us to look at how we, lo how we lost everything. Because the way they lost God, so to speak, is the way we lose him. The way that they, their process of creating a great separation and divide is how we do it today, still. Now, sin is beyond something that we just do. Sin is a condition that we're born into. And so as we examine how we lost everything, we're going to see that this condition that we've all been born into is kind of like putting that song on replay. Genesis 3 is very much on replay today. I'll, I'll, I'll show you this. Losing their relationship with God, it didn't begin with the lie. I mean, it, 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 I'm, I'm nuancing here. It did begin with the lie of the devil. But before he lied, he did something else. He didn't, he didn't come to them with an argument. He came with them with an attitude. It wasn't an argument against the existence of God. It was an attitude about God. Let's look at this. In verse 1, the devil says, did God actually say? And in the Hebrew, the word is af. And it means certainly. It means indeed. So what the devil does is, Eve says, hey, we can't eat the fruit. And the devil says, certainly. Yeah, yeah. 100%. 
See, he's using the word in the opposite way. When you say to somebody, way to go, Einstein, they don't say, thank you. It's ironic. Poor Einstein. <laughs> You're using the word in the exact opposite way. So what the devil does is he says in the Hebrew, af. of course. But he doesn't mean of course. So the, the first thing that he does is he doesn't come with this argument against the existence of God. He creates an atmosphere that sneers at God. It's not an argument. It's not intellectual. It's not sophisticated. It's eye-rolling. Okay. I've been watching you guys for a little while now, and I'd like to help you out. I'd like to open your eyes, okay? That's what's happening. And it's important that we see that we see that this big joke that he's, that he's making about God. It's because before he lies about what God said, he laughs at who God claims that he is. And... I read a commentary on this text by author and apologist Tim Keller and used this great phrase, and so I'm going to steal it. Thanks, Tim. And he said, it's like it's a sneer masquerading as sophistication. Because right after she says, ah, oh yeah, oh no, and absolutely, yeah, God said that, but I'd, I'd, like, you to I'd like to open your eyes now. It's, it's a, it's a, there's no argument being put on the table. It's just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pat you on the head and say, let me open your eyes to some truth here. How many of you kids have ever been singled out? How many of you kids have ever felt embarrassed because you, you said you liked something and somebody said, you like that? You like that movie? You say, I love hamburgers. You like hamburgers? Ew. How many of you kids have ever had that happen? They don't say, you know, let's have a discussion on the nutritional value of the McDonald's Big Mac. Like, there's no argument being presented. You just say, I like McDonald's, and they say, ew, that's gross. And so now you're embarrassed because they sneered at you. That's what's going on here. How many of you uh, students who are in high school or in university on campus have had someone just sneer at the idea that you believe in God they haven't put an argument on the table. They haven't said, oh, that's really interesting. Let's have a discussion or a dialogue about it. They just kind of, <laughs> uh, you simple-minded simpleton, right? How many of you adults have been or presently are afraid to share your faith because you're afraid of the big sneer? Of course. I've been there. I am there. I visit there more often than I care to admit. The big sneer. And they say, oh, Gosh, it's incredible that you go to church on Sundays because you've got more than a grade three education. And just something must be wrong with your critical thinking faculties. It's just a sneer. And I want to. And the reason I'm hammering this is because that's different than being skeptical. I talk with lots of people who are skeptical, and skeptical people they're presenting arguments and they're asking questions and they're interacting with it. People who sneer, they just like the sound of one hand clapping. You know. They just sneer at everything. <laughs> it's eye-rolling. And uh, so I'm not being critical of skeptics. And if you're here this morning and you're a skeptical and you've got a skeptic or you've got all kinds of questions about Christian faith, I think that's wonderful. And continue to ask those very difficult questions. I think that's good. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the eye-rolling and saying my eye-rolling is sophistication. That's not. And that's what he happened. So he says, did God say? Whatever. And so he introduced this whole sneering at God as a way of life. That's how they lost God. That's how we still lose God. We sneer at God as a way of life. You can't trust God. Be God. You can't trust in his grace. Save yourself. You can't know truth. Make it. It's the same. 
And the interesting thing about sneering at God is that it doesn't, it doesn't only deconstruct faith, it deconstructs everything because it's not actually giving everything. It's not actually giving anything. Uh, we, we did a book study on, uh, book on the belief in an age of skepticism by Keller, and we just did a, a book study on that. And in it, he talks about how, you know, sneering at God in this way, it's like a parasite. It's not adding anything to your life. Um, it's just kind of taking everything away. For example, dis, it deconstructs everything. Nishi said, all truth claims are power grabs. And a lot of people live that way. They, they have that kind of philosophy of Nishi. They're like, hey, if you make a truth claim, it's just a power grab. Well, if that's true, then that statement is also a power grab. That's not an argument. That's just a sneer. Oh, you think that you have truth? Well, <laughs> just sloughs it off. Freud said that, hey, all views of God are just psychological projections to deal with our own insecurity. Well, if that's true, then Freud's view of God is just a psychological projection to deal with his insecurity. See, it's not an actual argument. He's just sneering. <laughs> it doesn't. It deconstructs everything. I talk about C.S. Lewis a lot because I think he was a brilliant writer. He was an atheist philosopher and he was a writer. For much of his life, he was a tutor, at the Engl uh, tutor for Eng English literature at Oxford University. And he was a chair of Renaissance literature at Cambridge University. And when he came to faith, he wrote a book called The Abolition of Man in 1943. And as I was reading through The Abolition of Man, there's just these beautiful things uh, that he says that cause, cause you to get cut out of this sneer. Stop sneering at God and consider now, you know, uh, wrestle deeply with, you know, is there a God? And he said in uh, The Abolition of Man, he said, you can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something else through it. To see through everything is the same as to not see. This is the, this is the attitude that was created in their hearts that made way for the lie to entice their minds. Because the lie was, you know, you're not going to have less, you're going to have more. The lie was, your eyes will be opened, right? Now, all throughout Scripture, for those of you who are new to the Bible or new to the Scriptures, if you read, if you read the whole Bible, you're going to find this phrase, and their eyes were opened, a lot. And you know how it's used mostly throughout all of Scripture is a blind person who's given sight, or a person who's spiritually blind who has their eyes opened. And here in Genesis 3, the devil is saying to Adam and Eve, let me enlighten you. So the lie was, you know, uh, that God is holding back here. The lie, the, 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 the lie was deeper than just, hey, listen, you're going to be more like him. Again, I'm going to go to the Hebrew, not because Hebrew is that interesting to you, because, but because it may help you see how, how deep this offer went. How, how deep was this offer in Genesis 3? It's because in the Hebrew, when he says, uh, you'll be like God, the Hebrew is which is you will be as the God who has the power to affect. The God who has the power to affect. Hey, let me open your eyes. You can have the power to affect. You can be you don't need this God. You can have the power to affect. Sever the relationship. When he says, you can be as God, just cut this off. Find fulfillment outside of him. You see, the essence of sin is not doing bad things. Of course, bad things are sin. But that is not the essence of sin. I'm going to show you in a second. The essence of sin is not breaking the rules, right? A fruit tree is not a bad thing. A fruit tree is actually a good thing. 
So what we learn here is that the essence of sin is deeper than breaking the rules. It's refusing to relate to God like he's God. It can, it can lead to all of those things, but this isn't a mystical tree. There isn't, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, face-melting fruit on the tree. That's not what's going on here. The Bible doesn't talk about what kind of fruit it is because it's not relevant. Eating the fruit made a deeper statement than I don't care about the rules of God. That wasn't the offer. The offer wasn't break the rules. It wasn't, I, it, what it said was, I will find fulfillment outside God. I will sever this relationship with God and be God. Because clearly he's holding out in some way. It's, it's taking this fruit tree, this good thing, and then making it ultimate. Right? Is having a sense of pride in your heritage, your culture, is that a bad thing? No. But historically, historically speaking, what happens when the pride of culture becomes ultimate? Oppression, violence, racism, genocide. That's where it goes when it becomes ultimate. Is there anything wrong with having wealth and material possessions? No. If you have wealth and material possessions, it's because God gave those things to you. So enjoy them, bless your family with them, and further the gospel with them. That's what it's for. It's a good thing. But what happens when you make it ultimate? Wheels off materialism that has created not undeniable environmental impact, but also massive uh, social impact to, to facilitate uh, that constant stream of wheels off, I got to have more, nothing is enough. That's what happens when it becomes ultimate. Is, are your loving relationships a problem? No, those are all good things. They're like the fruit tree. It's a good thing. But not if you make it the ultimate thing it isn't. Then all of your relationships are going to crush you because they're your God. So those people can't let you down. And you're going to crush them with your expectations because they can't fulfill that God-shaped hole in your heart. They can't stand in it. Is your education or your career a problem? No, those are good things. That's like the fruit tree. But if your education, if your career, if what you do after you graduate high school or after you graduate university, if like that's your, if that becomes your God, if your source of identity is in that, you're going to be crushed with constant anxiety and worry and fret about who you are and your place in the world. And it's moving it to that ultimate place is how we lost everything. And so the essence of sin is being our own God and going to something that is infinitely smaller than God, hoping that it'll give to our souls the grace and the peace that only comes from God. And so whenever we take a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing, we're saying, this will fulfill me. And just like our original parents, we enter into soul erosion, which leads us to the last thing. If there's a problem underneath everything, and that's how we lost everything, then how is God restoring everything? Well, he will restore everything. In verses 7 and 9, their eyes are opened. They see that they're naked. They sow themselves in fig leaves and, they, leaves and they hide from God. They run away. We see this great alienation. They're alienated from God. They're alienated from each other. They're alienated from themselves. There's just the breakdown of sin right there in the garden. This is what happens. Spiritual, psychological, sociological alienation right there in Genesis 3. But then God comes looking. How many of you kids who are in here have ever heard your parents say, you know, I'll use my name, Paul Michael Dunk, get over here. Have you ever? Hmm? Full names used? I'll use my brother's name. My brother's name is even, it was way better than mine because he has four names. Nelson Victor Charles Dunk. You know, you really know you're in trouble when they say all four of your names, right? A lot of, a lot of times that's how we, that's the tone we think this is being, being said in. You are in trouble. Come here. And I needed to know that is not the tone. It is not the tone. 
God is not asking where... Notice the question. He doesn't say, Adam, what did you do? He says, Adam, where are you? God is omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't need information. He sees them. He knows where they are. He's saying, Adam, where are you? Because he's drawing their attention to their need for saving. Adam, where are you? And right here from the beginning, we find God is seeking them out. Not to kill them, to save them. Right here from Genesis 3, the moment that man broke everything, the moment that we brought damnation, God is seeking and saving the lost. He is seeking to save. Where are you? Why? So he can save them. That's what he's been doing from the beginning. This is the beauty of how God is going to re restore everything. God wasn't surprised by any of this. They didn't eat the fruit and God didn't turn to the angels and go, what? Can you believe what they just did? My mind is being blown. Michael, Gabriel, get over here. These guys just ruined. God is not surprised by this. He created mankind with dignity and free will. Even the free will to slap him in the face, which our parents did in the garden. He gave them that dignity. And knowing before the foundation of the world that we would lose everything, in his great grace, he purposed to restore everything. God didn't cause the mess, but God wanted to share of himself and create man and expand the circle of love. And he said, you know, the risk of doing this is that they can reject me, but my love is so great, I'm going to let them reject me. And even though I know they're going to reject me, I'm going to come and I'm going to redeem them and I'm going to save them even in the face of that rejection. Which is why 2 Timothy 1, John 1, John 17, Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 1, Revelations 13, all say before the foundations of the world, God knew what was up. He will seek and save the lost. A lot of people have the idea about the Bible and the idea about God that God sends innocent people to hell. And Christians who've you know, loosely leafed through their Bible maybe also talk that way. Like, I can't believe, I don't understand, God would send innocent people to hell. The message of the Bible from Genesis 3 is that there are no innocent people. And God from the beginning has been moving heaven and earth to save all of us who are not innocent from that trajectory of death and hell. He has from the beginning, right from the moment Adam sinned, where are you? How do I get my grace to you? How do I come at you? How do I restore you? How do I redeem you? The message of the entire Bible, right from Genesis, is that the Creator God is the redeeming God, that He is uh, moving towards us. Everything that is alive is on a trajectory towards death. The message of the Bible is God is moving to interrupt that trajectory. That's where we're all headed. Regardless of the worldview, we're all going the same place. The message of the Bible is I'm going to interrupt this so that in the end is not death but life. In the end is not darkness but light. The end of your story is not coldness, six feet under the ground. It is life forever with God. The creator God is the redeeming God. That's the message of scripture. This is the hope of the gospel. And none of us deserve that. None of us deserve any of that, starting with this preacher. 
God's undeserved saving grace starts in Genesis, the moment man sinned. Adam and Eve sin, and God does not move away from them. He moves toward them. He rushes toward them, not to kill them, to save them. Church, God does not move away from you when you sin. He rushes towards you. When you fall down, flat on your face, and you look in the mirror, and you say, I can't believe I did that again. I thought I was past this. He's not running away from you, crossing his fingers and going, you know what, there's just, I can't deal with you people. He's running towards us with his grace. And he does it because his rescuing grace has a reforming trajectory. He, his grace turns our hearts away from trusting in those infinitely tiny things, hoping they will give our, our souls peace and fulfillment. And he turns us towards himself, which is why in Romans 5, Jesus is called the second Adam. And I close with this. You see, in the garden, God asked Adam to obey him about a tree, and Adam didn't. In the garden of Gethsemane, God asked the second Adam to obey him by being crucified on a tree, and the second Adam did. The first Adam failed, and the second Adam, Jesus, he succeeded. The first Adam brought sin and death. The second Adam brings grace and life. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ reveals that God takes all of our pain and our sorrow and our suffering very seriously. He takes your frustration and your pain and your sorrow so seriously, he took it on himself. And so it's because the cross was a tree of death for Jesus, it's a tree of life for us. In the beginning, they took and they ate and it brought death. But now, church, every Sunday... Two minutes from now, we take and we eat and we celebrate that we have life. The very act of damnation has been redeemed and is now an act that reminds us of our great redemption. Everything we lost because of Adam's disobedience by a tree is being restored by Christ, the second Adam's perfect obedience for us on a tree. So our sin problem that's underneath everything that causes us to lose everything has been redeemed through the grace of Christ who is restoring everything. Let's pray.